My name is Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the Agony Column podcast. You can find more book news, reviews, interviews, and commentary on my website, http trashotroncom agony. One of the reasons I started podcasting was because I had a backlog of interviews that I had not managed to broadcast or upload, and I wanted to bring those interviews to readers and listeners. This week's podcast is my 2003 interview with Gregory Maguire, author of Wicked, or The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. His latest book when I spoke to him was Mirror, Mirror, which recasts the story of Snow White into the times of Lucretia Borgia. His newest book is a sequel to Wicked titled Son of a Witch. Now, my 2003 interview with Gregory Maguire. We looked at each other, that girl and I. She, out of childish curiosity and caution, I out of the need to have something to talk to her father about. I had no native interest in this child. I attest to that now. I would have been happy never to see her again. She was no more than a saucer of spoiled milk to me. Though, she had her beauty. I'll grant you that. She curved, rush-like, against her father's well-turned calf. She had the face of a new blossom— a freshness and paleness one could imagine some sorcerer growing in a moonlit garden. Her hair was pinned up in a womanly fashion, despite her youth, and its blackness, under a net of simple, unornamented cord, had a steepness to it, a depth. Odd how such things strike one. Her eyes were hidden from me. She wouldn't look up. Her skin was white as snow. Gregory Maguire has been reinventing children's fiction for adults since the publication of his novel Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. His latest novel is Mirror, Mirror. Welcome to the show, Gregory. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Gregory, a lot of people, including myself, didn't know until recently that you've written quite a bit of young adult fiction before you wrote these four fabulous novels for adults. Well, it's true. I think when when I first came up with the idea of Wicked and sold it to an adult publisher, the fine and sterling minds at the helm of the, of the marketing department said, if we put on the dust jacket that you also write children's books, uh, we might scare away some readers who think this is just an overgrown children's book. Uh, instead, they wanted to, me to appear to bloom on the scene like Venus on the, the half shell, a complete novice, hitting it big time first time out. Well, I protested that because I admired the work that I do for children's books, but I lost the battle, so <laughs> so that's why you didn't know about it. Uh, tell us a little bit about the your children's books. They are, in the, uh, in the terms of the field, chapter books, which means that children can read 8 or 10 or 15 pages, uh, flap the book down next to their bed, and wake up in the morning and keep reading. Not quite as dense and as complicated as Harry Potter books, but they are fantasies. I've been a fantasist my whole professional life for for 25 years, so they belong in sort of the same general category as the Madeleine Lengel books and Charlotte's Web and Harry Potter and and perhaps the Narnia books. It's interesting that you mentioned fantasy, which has become a very big deal now with the popularity of the Lord of the Rings motion picture. You didn't come up through the usual fantasy ranks, though, of genre fiction publishing. How did you manage to sidestep that? Uh, mostly by, by the stupidity for which I'm so well known. I've never gone toward any goal in my life in any sensible way. Indeed, I, I started writing for children 
knowing that knowing one thing that children were sensible intelligent readers probably more sensible more intelligent and more strict than adult readers and i cared to start with a harsh audience let's face it if a kid doesn't like a book he or she is going to toss it across the room by page 12 and and go back to the video games in order to engage a kid reader you really have to be at the top of your game i believe so that's really how i started i started trying to engage the child in myself and uh, the children with whom i i occasionally taught and spoke how does it feel to become widely known for the adult books and yet have this huge other body of writing behind you it, well it's, it's akin to becoming an overnight success after 17 years of of poverty in the garret uh, when Wicked came out, I I was pretty sure it was going to do well enough because even if it had been poorly written, even if I was a terrible stylist and a clumsy thinker, it was nonetheless a good idea. Even I could see that. My publisher could see that too. It could have been inept and it still would have done all right. But it did more than all right. It really caught on by word of mouth thanks in large part to the independent booksellers and to rabid and devout readers. And lo and behold, I found myself actually, I hardly dare say this on the airwaves, making money. I'd never made money as a writer before. I thought, in fact, there was something immoral about making money if you wanted to be in the arts. Wicked is based on another person's work, L. Frank Baum. First off, how does it feel to have your stuff evolve from somebody else's work? I think that I'm probably less fussed by that than many other people, including the many devout members of the International Wizard of Oz Society and, uh, and clubs. I think I, I saw recently a publication by the L. Frank Baum Society or, or some such organization that listed just in the last 10 years the number of books that were descended from the original bomb material. Wicked was included among them, and the, the little paragraph uh, abstract about Wicked says, perhaps the most heretical of any book that it derives from the, the work of the great master. Well, for all that, for all that I have to worry about people being offended, I have so many fans who think that I've, I've hit it, I've hit the nail on the head with the confusions and the complications uh, and the inconsistencies in the original that I feel fairly well welcomed into L. Frank Baum's world. I do believe, actually, he would probably be pretty happy that I had uh, resurrected and rehabilitated his Wicked Witch of the West. This brings to mind some of the phenomena of fan fiction. Given what you're writing and the success and the quality that you brought to it, it's conceivable that somewhere out there, somebody's writing the wicked of Star Trek. <laughs> I suspect that's probably true. Indeed, I've only recently learned what fan fiction is. A friend of mine sent me to uh, a couple of sites, I think, on the on the computer where one can read some. And I stayed for a little bit. <laughs> and then I unplugged the computer. <laughs> thought, oh, I think I'm going to, I think my computer is too prudent, you know, too prudish. The, the circuits are going to get fried by this. So uh, I certainly haven't been, it certainly hasn't been my intention ever to go into the original material and convert 
or or subvert the original intentions. What I've wanted always to do is to amplify rather than to to deny or to contradict. Well, Wicked is certainly successful at that. I'm wondering if you could talk about how you keep your referential fiction from seeming cheap so that the characters that you pull out of The Wizard of Oz, how you keep them from just seeming like stunt casting, so to speak, in in a novel? That's a good question. And I I would like to think it's because of the 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 searing beauty of my prose style. <laughs> but since it probably isn't that, uh, I will say that more likely it's the case that there's there are very few people that we know in our own lives, including our siblings and our parents and, and our children, who don't reveal more the closer scrutiny you apply to them. When you see more in a character, you're not as I say, necessarily contradicting what you've known before, you're expanding upon it and making it more subtle. I never want to write cardboard characters. If I, if I take a cardboard character and can make uh, it, him or her, more believable, that's fine. But I don't want to take a cardboard character and leave it, leave it cardboard. I suspect that's where what you're what you're asking about really might uh, might come to play, right? It seems that you take a great care with all of your characters and flesh them out really nicely and give them complicated backgrounds and current presence as well. Everybody has a surprise. Uh, I mean, everybody has more than one surprise. Everybody has almost a surprise a day, I should think. Indeed, being being awake every day is a surprise. This is to jump just a touch, but I, I do remember reading a line from John Updike once. He's writing about an elderly gentleman, and uh, I certainly am not quoting verbatim. I'm not even sure of the book. But the gentleman was had a failed bladder, and his circulation wasn't very good. He kind of wondered why he even wanted to wake up every morning, and it was basically because there was the sheer chance that tomorrow might be different than today. That's the surprise with which we all live. One of the things about your fantasy that I find just fascinating is how deeply political it is. You wouldn't think that a book about the Wicked Witch of the West would prove pertinent to our times with of the Patriot Act and terrorism, yet I read passages in there where you managed to make the Emerald City seem like Baghdad. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I don't claim prescience, but I do claim, again, that if you stir something up a little bit and complicate it, there will be deeper resonances even than you know you've put in. At one point when Wicked was published, it was it was the Emerald City was deemed to be a little bit like Berlin. Somebody else said, well, this is like Washington, D.C., and now you've said Baghdad. Well, isn't that great that the Emerald City can remind so many different readers of, of places of uh, glory, oppression, and complicated history? Your politics in these novels are fascinating. I wonder if you care to discuss how you create the conflicts that you do in both in Wicked and in Mirror, Mirror. They both have some very interesting political backgrounds and implications. The politics in Wicked and the politics in Mirror, Mirror are different. The politics in Wicked are those that derive from my own childhood sense of outrage that the 
apparent villain, the Wicked Witch of the West, because she was so flashy and she had so many talents, completely obscured what, to my childhood way of thinking of, was the the real villain, the hidden villain, who was the wizard, the one who hid behind his curtain and who lied. That struck huge resonances with me as a child who grew up under the shadow of Vietnam, believing and being terrified that I would be drafted and have to go fight the uh, <laughs> the Wicked Witch of the Viet Cong uh, and, and steal her broom because the uh, president wouldn't come out of the White House and take credit or blame for what indeed he was doing. So there was a real, a real genuine sense of outrage at lying in government and at children being sent to do the work of, of adults, the cannon fodder of the draftees, the cannon fodder of Dorothy being sent to do a job the wizard was too scared to leave the palace to do himself. But the politics of Mirror Mirror, which takes place in the High Renaissance, are far more closely rooted in history. I, who have a pretty dull mind, like to set my books in different eras, in part because I set myself a kind of a graduate-level course in an area of history or or knowledge about which I know precious little. So in Mirror Mirror, Cesare Borgia, the brother of Lucrezia Borgia, is parading around his his uh, central Italy with his with his various armies, trying to unite the six city states of Italy under one under one head, under sort of the Pope's temporal realm. This really did happen. The more I read the the history of central Italy the more I thought, oh, he was he was Garibaldi two and a half centuries earlier. He failed miserably, but, uh, but how interesting that he should have tried, and how did that make all the people who had peasant sons and daughters having to go off to fight his battles feel about him? He was hugely uh, attractive, hugely powerful, and fatally flawed. Indeed, in some ways, not such a good soldier, but his motivations were complex and I think very modern. You do so much research for a book. How do you edit out and keep from turning 270-page novel into a 3,000-page thesis slash novel? Well, I, I, I'm very lucky to have three little, uh, three little monkeys who live in my house, my children ages 5, 3, and 2. And uh, the necessity to feed them and to get my manuscripts into my publisher in time so that they can be published at the at the correct publishing season does chasten my style some it does it does correct me from the glossolalia with which I might otherwise be afflicted but also the details of of history have to serve the movement of the plot so there are many things that i know about central italian politics that have been expunged from the text because they don't in any way move the story forward they would only complicate and send too many, too many extra names into the minds of readers who were already, you know, begging for mercy. Could you tell us a little bit about balancing your fairy tale content versus the historical content? Each of the times that I that I choose to use a fairy tale as a kind of uh, architectural structure upon which to hinge uh, my plot and my intellectual concerns. I do it because a fairy tale by its very nature, I think, is somewhat eroded and decayed. It's an older story that 
by dint of many, many, many retellings, have had lots of ellipses put into the uh, into the telling. So I suspect 400 years ago, there was probably a pretty good reason when people told the story of Snow White that there were dwarves and a magic mirror and poison apples all in the same story. But by the time the story comes down to us, a lot of the original meaning and context of that is lost. In the same way that in a Mother Goose rhyme, we don't really know what the rhymes mean. They're just now happy little sounds that rhyme. A fairy tale allows a lot of purchase. One can sneak into the recesses, those those eroded, worn-away parts of the fairy tale, find oneself at home, and still do honor to the original structure such as it exists. It isn't all that hard to say in Snow White, gee, magic mirrors? Well, now, when when was mirror-making really prominent? The Venetians knew a lot about glass. Lucrezia Borgia is one of the world's most famous poisoners in, in history, Dwarves are rumored to work underground, and grass and glass is made out of sand, which is a substance from the earth. So, in a way, just thinking a little bit about it, the connections begin to be made, and a little bit more cause and effect and consequence blurts out of the story just as soon as you start looking. Could you tell us a little bit about rewriting mythologies, Christian mythologies and pre-Christian mythologies? I suppose it's true that I have... I have a great deal of interest in the bedrock of assumptions upon which we stand and tremble, but about which we tend to know very little and and to think very seldom. I'm wondering if you could talk about how you mine the past, how you go into these fairy tales and reset them into historical worlds. You've done it three, four times now. That's right. Well, the best one the best one to talk about is Mirror Mirror because mm-hmm. it is it is new and it is it's the book for which I'm uh, traveling right now. It is Snow White set at, during the High Renaissance, and as I said, Lucrezia Borgia, the daughter of the most corrupt pope in the Catholic two thousand years of Catholic history, Alexander the Sixth, was her father and purported uh, lover as well. When I decide finally that, well, it makes sense to tell this story of Snow White in the Italian Renaissance. But it's going to be an Italian Renaissance that's a little bit like Gabriel Marquez. There's, there's, there's magic still afoot in this Italian peninsula. What I do? Well, I go to Italy. I drink a lot of red wine. I talk to my friends. I read histories. And I, and I do the kind of tourism that's very helpful. What did I do? I went to Arezzo, and I saw a wonderful fresco recently recleaned by Piero della Francesca about the finding of the true cross, the cross uh, St. Helena found uh, upon which Christ was said to have been buried and the wood from which is said to have sprouted from the original tree in the Garden of Eden that gave us the apple that, that Eve ate. Well, there's, look at all that syncretism that's going on on the walls of this church in Italy painted 400 years ago. So I'm marveling at that. The, the ability to, to synthesize stories into a coherent narrative is something that human beings have been doing for a long time. In a way, that's what stories are. But as I'm standing thinking about my Snow White, I'm thinking about apples, and I'm thinking, oh, apples, poison apples. There's 
an apple from the tree of knowledge, one of the original apples that Eve was said to have picked and, and eaten and given to Adam. It's painted on the walls of this Italian church maybe 50 years before my, st my story began. And look, just two panels down in the fresco, there's a dwarf. There's a dwarf who looks dignified. He doesn't. He, he's not a munchkin. He's not a comic figure. He's not. He's not misshapen. He's. He's a dwarf, and he's standing there, just as ready to receive the light of revelation as any other human being. Well, all of that worked into my story, Mirror Mirror. To see it all together on the, on the panel and then to be able to go and drink half a bottle of Merlot while I thought about it. Wow. I mean, what could be better? Who wants a better job than this? Not I. The passing of magic is a favorite theme in fantasy, and it certainly plays a part in this book. Could you talk about how and why you brought that into this book? Well, that, that, that dovetails nicely with your earlier question. The passing of magic and the beginning of the dawning of the light of reason, uh, which would flourish at its at its greatest height, one would imagine, in the 18th century, is a perfect topic for the story of Snow White. Because what she does is pass through the magic of her childhood in which singing and capering dwarves and magic mirrors can be part of the world in which she lives. But in order to enter into her own adult state, in order to reawaken out of childhood when the prince or somebody who passes for the prince finally manages to get around and give her a, give her a kiss and dislodge the apple from her, from her gullet. That's a story of maturation. That's a story of waking up, throwing aside the glass uh, coffin lid of your childhood and having a second life, having a second life of reason. I set the story in the High Renaissance because that's what the High Renaissance was doing too. It was trying to throw off its superstitious origins and come to some sense of the cause and effect, the dignity and breadth of the human spirit uh, without the underpinnings of a peasant superstition. The difference between human perception and inhuman perception plays a part as well, doesn't it? Yes, that's true. One, there are there are a number of different kinds of of inhuman perception, and the one that you're referring to, I suspect, uh, the most directly is the perception of the dwarves. Now, in my mirror, mirror, the dwarves are not little uh, Disney uh, Disney creatures, as I said, capering and and singing and bumping into each other in the hallway. They are instead more like sentient boulders or bits of bits of granite that have some yearning, some appetite to become more magnificent and to learn something of what humans know. I did this for several reasons. Uh, one is uh, the copyright laws. <laughs> I, I couldn't use Doc and Grumpy and Sneezy even if I wanted to. And believe me, I didn't really want to. Nor did I want to write about standard-issue garden gnomes. Nor did I want to write about real physical dwarves, or that is, human beings afflicted with, with dwarfism. I wanted to do. I wanted to have another way to talk about the passage of time and the maturation of spirit. So, if Snow White, my Bianca de Nevada, is the human example of the maturation from childhood to maturity, then the dwarves 
will be the inhuman example. But they're all actually on the same path, the same path the culture is on as well. The passage of time plays an important part in your novel as well. Different forms of the passage of time, the supernatural passage of time and the human passage of time. That's right. The uh, well, Snow White, poor Snow White. She's got you know. She you think she had some sort of a sleeping sickness? <laughs> I forget what the name of the what, narcolepsy is it, where where you're constantly falling asleep. First, she falls asleep in the dwarf's house and sleeps for three or four years. By the time she wakes up, her bosom has developed, her uh, her hair has grown longer, her clothes have rotted to shreds, and she's a different person. But then she has a second death that she has to go through when she finally does eat of the poison apple and subside into something pretty close to a coma. While that's happening, the passage of time is deeply significant, both to my stone dwarves who have their own names, who are wanting, they want to be more engaged in time, even if it means they'll be closer to death. They still want the they want the access to the thrill of life. And Lucrezia Borgia, my villainess, is terrified of the passage of time because she suspects, as most of us do, that she's never going to know as much as she would like to know in this human life. And her death is going to bring a sort of relief or a sort of release that she cannot predict and that she may not admire <laughs> once it happens. You also speak quite a bit about religion and the fact that the power of religion is extended only to those who believe in it. This happens in Wicked most notably. I think that's true. Well, I, I don't mind putting a, uh, calling a spade a spade. I was raised a religious person and I still am a member of, of my church, uh, quite devoutly, well, quite devoutly, I say, meaning that I protest and I scream and I write letters to the editor and I write articles for Commonweal Magazine and I, I make my, my loud, cranky voice heard. But religion and religious thought is of great interest to me as being one of the many levels of strata upon which our Western thinking and our individual human spirits uh, cavort. And, and have their support. It is true in Mirror, Mirror that there do seem to be characters who are capable of some sort of devotion. They are not necessarily the most uh, effective of the characters, nor perhaps are they the happiest, but they may be the most complex. I'm not sure about that. It's an interesting question. I haven't, I haven't followed it along, but maybe your readers can keep Listeners can keep uh, thinking about that. You need to have a soul in order to have an afterlife, don't you? I think that in conventional terms you do. And at that you get, you move back away from Mirror Mirror and toward Wicked. Yes. Because one of the, one of the great bits of fun, <laughs> if fun is the right word, that I could say about the Wicked Witch of the West in my book I call her Elphaba, is that with her green skin, she is deemed by her minister father and by most of those who meet her as being quite possibly so morally rotten that she has no soul. I sometimes, when asked to read from Wicked, will read a little bit toward the very end where Elphaba is talking to a 12-year-old boy who lives in her castle 
and he says to her, Dorothy, and she sa- he says, the tin man wants a heart, and the lion wants courage, and the scarecrow wants brains. And she says, and I suppose Dorothy wants a shoehorn. Uh, he says, no, Dorothy wants to go home. What do you want? And she tries to snap at him and make fun and say, a soldier, to make fun of the fact that he has, you know, mooning affections for the guys in uniform at the bottom of the hill. But even as she says it, a little bit of charity creeps in and she can't say it. And she says, a soul. She cuts herself off. And the word that comes out is a soul. And then think of how her life ends. It's with a, a splash of water that kills her. And perhaps it also completes her. I leave that up to the reader to decide. One of my favorite observations from Wicked that seems very applicable today is the inverse relationship between conspiracy and paranoia. You've got some good questions. You've really been thinking. Yes, they're, well, conspiracy and paranoia are, they may be two sides of the same coin, or somebody else has said it, uh, if we all really understood how much conspiracy there was, we'd all be paranoid. <laughs> and partly, I, uh, in, in my darker moments, uh, sometimes I, I think that that's the case. It's fascinating the way you have Elphaba doubting herself and wondering when there's a conspiracy and when she's just being paranoid. She is... Isn't she? Isn't she a poor, benighted soul? <laughs> she's most unhappy, but she's, very entertaining. She's most unhappy. People sometimes ask the question, "Why did you write about such a failure?" And I say to myself, and sometimes to them, that yes, it's true that almost every campaign she undertakes in the whole four hundred and nine-page book is unsuccessful. She does have a love affair, but it ends badly. She has political uh, ideas, and she wants to do some political terrorism, and she's ineffectual about it. She can't get the forgiveness she needs. But is that the measure of a failed life, or is it? could she not be considered a success? Because unlike many people who can't achieve what they set out to do, she never stops. She never stops wanting and she never stops trying. So in that way, if she is paranoid or if there is a conspiracy about her, around her, in any sense it doesn't matter because she never stops working toward what she, leaves, what she believes to be uh, an appropriate goal. Your work has been adapted. Most recently, the uh, book Wicked has become a musical. Tell us a little bit how that came to be. The book Wicked had been first opted for a Universal Films that uh, the production company of Demi Moore uh, was very interested in. And Universal Films did some uh, scripts for it, but in the end, it was deemed to be uh, too expensive a project. I still think there is that thing called the glass ceiling where uh, because all the main characters in Wicked are women... Uh, it would be unlikely to have a Mel Gibson and Harrison Ford playing the Wicked Witch of the West and Glinda, you know, the Good Witch of the North. The film would not have been opened with a big male star, so $110 million was deemed to be too expensive a budget for that film. 
However, Universal Studios, like many other studios on the West Coast, is busy watching how much money Disney is making on Broadway with The Lion King and Aida and Beauty and the Beast on stage. So Universal Studios responded warmly when the composer Stephen Schwartz, who had written Godspell and Pippin and done some work in Hollywood as well, approached them and said, this would make a great musical. They believed him. They were a big part of the funding behind it. And it opened less than a week ago in New York. How's it doing? It's doing fabulously. Ticket sales are very strong, and audiences stand up and scream at the end of uh, at the end of the show, and indeed at the end of the first act too, when the Wicked Witch of the West really first becomes the person we we recognize from our reading, and also uh, inevitably from the MGM nineteen thirty nine film. How was it adapted? Did you have a part changing the plot, transferring it? Did you write the book? I didn't write the book. I was my contract allowed me to vet and to approve the composer, the lyricist, the book writer, uh, which of course is the is the language spoken and the way the story is shaped for the stage, and the director. And I happily said yes to everybody who was proposed because I didn't have very much experience on the stage. Uh, or, in, or in that business. But I'm very happy with everything that's been done. I saw the play in what I call the oratorio sing-through, where a cast of 18 just sang the songs and read the lines uh, standing on bleachers. And I gave notes when I saw that, and I gave notes to the director after seeing the play in San Francisco, where it opened and ran for five weeks in, in late May and early June. I don't know that my notes... Uh, meant anything to anybody <laughs> who, who uh, was working on the show. But I don't care. It's very helpful indeed in one way to have a rather distant relationship to it so that I can be like a proud grandfather and just say, oh, isn't it sweet? Oh, well, so it might be a little bit excessive in this bit, but oh, isn't it sweet? Isn't it great? Uh, but I really do feel that way. I also don't have to feel implicated quite happily with any part that I don't like or with parts that critics might not approve of. Uh, somebody doesn't like this, somebody doesn't like that. Well, that's not really my affair because I, I'm not part of the creative team. My creative work was finished eight years ago. That and the creative work of signing the contract when a contract came along, which was a great deal of fun. That book must have been something of, a, of your favorite child. How hard was it to let go of it? It wasn't hard at all. And the reason is this. I have as much hubris as the next uh, person, perhaps a little bit more than some. But after all, Wicked was based on The Wizard of Oz by another <laughs> writer. If I should say that The Wizard of Oz, which was published in 1900, became a musical in 1903, became an early film in 1914 or 18, became a big-budget famous film in 1939, had... Uh, a stage production uh, with an all-black cast in the in the 70s or early 80s, The Wiz, then that was filmed too. If I should say this thing could evolve for 101 years and now has to stop with me and cannot evolve anymore, well, even I, with as much hubris as I can pack into my little frame, uh, you know, couldn't manage that. The thing, the thing should have a right to evolve. The fact that it does evolve means that it has strength and power both the original and, I hope, my work as well. Who do you read? I still read Writers for Children. 
for pleasure and for consolation. I go back to writers that I read uh, 35 years ago, Edward Eager's Half Magic, Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time, which is a beautifully plotted book. A writer less well-known than some named Jane Langton, whose book The Diamond in the Window, published in 1963, was my favorite book for most of my childhood. As an adult, I tend not to read very much fantasy, actually, and I tend to read primarily English novelists. This is not because I have any objection to American novelists, but I am very interested in a certain kind of prose style. The the plain-spoken American prose style doesn't give me quite the frisson that the prose style of of your garden variety English novelist does. There are some exceptions. Possibly my favorite American writer is a fellow named Ron Hansen for his novel Mariette in Ecstasy and another novel called Hitler's Niece. There's very little I've ever read of him that doesn't give me a great deal of pleasure. I'm enormously fond of Wallace Stegner as well. But when I feel in need of a jolt, I'll go back to Virginia Woolf or E.M. Forster, or I'll read their contemporary counterparts. I'll read Penelope Fitzgerald or Penelope Lively or Anita Bruckner or try to find somebody new who will you know, sit happily on that in that camp. Can you tell us a little bit about your next novel? Are you working on something already? Every time I get on a plane to fly across the country to come to do readings and interviews, I think by the time I land, I better have my next novel sorted out in my head because sure as shooting, somebody's going to ask me about it. Well, I do have a contract. I've got quite a, he- quite a healthy contract, I'm happy to say, for my publisher for a number of novels, and I have a number of ideas. But I suspect the book tour for Mirror, Mirror and to promote Wicked, the musical, is going to have to be over before I decide with any conviction which my next piece is going to be. We have been talking with Gregory Maguire. His new book is Mirror, Mirror. He's also the author of Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West, which is now a Broadway musical. Thanks, Gregory. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Agony Column Podcast. I'm Rick Kleffel, and you just heard my conversation with Gregory Maguire. You can find more book news, reviews, interviews, and commentary on my website, http slash slash trashotron.com slash agony. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.